This week, PG&E loses plan exclusivity, allowing Elliot to pursue rival plan. Sixth Circuit denies mandamus petition to compel Judge Polster's recusal. Judge Drain grants Purdue debtors preliminary injunction against new opioid-related actions. We're on all this, and as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high-yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Connor Skelding, reporter for Reorg in New York. Later this episode, Reorg Covenant's head, Peter Washkowitz, will discuss trends in European and U.S. high-yield issuances. It's Sunday, October 13th. On Wednesday, Judge Dennis Montali entered an order granting the joint motion to terminate debtor plan exclusivity brought by the Ad Hoc Committee of Unsecured Note Holders and Official Committee of Tort Claimants, while denying the PG&E debtor's motion for a second extension of exclusivity. In his decision, Judge Montali stated that, quote, The parties most deserving of consideration, speaking through the TCC, have changed their position from the last time the court considered terminating exclusivity and spoken loudly and clearly that they want their and the senior noteholders' proposed plan to be considered. Although he granted termination of exclusivity to the petitioners, Judge Montali expressly denied other parties' request that exclusivity be, quote, terminated globally. Also on Wednesday, U.S. District Judge James Donato entered an order briefly summarizing the issues presented by the PG&E Wildfire Claims Estimation Proceeding and the party's agreements to date regarding procedure. The order generally tracked statements made by Judge Donato in earlier status conferences, including the party's agreement to a two-week estimation hearing beginning February 18, 2020, quote, with the possibility of an additional week if warranted. The order also reiterated statements made at the status conference, quote, emphasizing that the task here is to reasonably estimate PG&E's probable liability to the victims of the Northern California wildfires as quickly as possible. The PG&E debtors also submitted a response on Wednesday to Judge William Alsop's request for additional information regarding three 2019 wildfires of more than 10 acres reported by the utility. Debtors had submitted on October 1st a list of nine fires of 10 acres or more during 2019 that its equipment may have contributed to igniting. The response includes additional information regarding those fires, as requested by Judge Alsup, as well as information regarding a September 28th fire that was not included in the earlier submission and for which, quote, the cause is currently unknown. Thursday was a busy day for opioid MDL matters in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. First, the court issued a decision denying defendants' mandamus petition to compel the recusal of Judge Polster. The circuit court also denied as moot the petitioner's motion to expedite a decision and to stay the Bellwether trial set to begin October 21st pending a ruling. The three-judge Sixth Circuit panel admonished Judge Polster to, quote, avoid public comment, but found that petitioners, which include 16 manufacturers, distributors, and pharmacies, had failed to meet the standard for granting mandamus. Later in the day, the Court of Appeals issued a second decision denying the Ohio Attorney General's mandamus petition seeking to dismiss municipalities and counties' claims for remedy of societal harms in the opioid MDL proceedings or to delay the October 21st trial until after the adjudication of the state's similar claims. A separate panel of the Sixth Circuit found that the Ohio AG, quote, despite having noticed that the county's claims would proceed to trial, made no attempt to intervene in the MDL for the limited purpose of raising the issues that it now asks us to decide by extraordinary means. A few hours later, the AG filed a motion asking the Sixth Circuit to stay the October 21st trial, while the AG sought U.S. Supreme Court review of the decision, but the Court of Appeals quickly entered a summary order denying this request. 
Moving out of the MDL into Oklahoma, on Monday, the state filed a counter-appeal to the appeal brought by Johnson & Johnson to Judge Tad Balkman's order, which required the defendants to pay approximately $572.1 million in the state's public nuisance lawsuit. J&J's appeal was filed in the Oklahoma Supreme Court on September 25th, Despite Judge Balkman's August 26th statement, the judgment was not a final appealable order and his direction to parties to submit proposed final orders for entry by the court. In the filing, defendants argue that the judgment should be reduced by more than $455 million to provide them with a, quote, credit for Oklahoma settlements with other opioid defendants and to correct a, quote, calculation error by the court, which allegedly inflated the judgment amount by, quote, over $100 million. The appeal also takes general issue with the court's conclusion that defendants were liable for public nuisance. On Friday afternoon, Judge Robert Drain granted the Purdue Pharma debtors' motion for a preliminary injunction on actions by government agencies and individual claimants against the debtors and, quote, related parties, including former or current owners, directors, officers, and employees, relating to the opioid crisis up until November 6th. The debtors had requested a 180-day preliminary injunction, but Judge Drain directed them to work on resolving concerns of certain objecting states and other governmental units, including with respect to information sharing during the initial period, before returning to the court to request the longer injunction. Judge Drain determined that the debtors had met the legal standard for a preliminary injunction and that continued litigation would, quote, materially and adversely affect the debtors' Chapter 11 process and estates. On Tuesday evening, the Purdue Pharma debtors filed a term sheet for a, quote, proposed comprehensive settlement between the debtors, the ad hoc committee of consenting claimants, and the, quote, shareholder parties, including shareholders, trusts, beneficiaries, companies, affiliates, family members, and, quote, any similar related parties. The settlement is with 23 state attorneys general, five U.S. territories, and the Ohio MDL plaintiffs. Acknowledging the likely participation of other stakeholders in the Chapter 11 cases, the term sheet states that the debtors and ad hoc committee intend to, quote, work together and with such stakeholders as applicable in good faith to negotiate, draft, and finalize definitive documents in furtherance of the proposed settlement. Persons with a pursuant to the plan, pardon me, 100% of Purdue's assets or equity would be placed under a trust or similar post-emergent structure for the benefit of claimants and, quote, the U.S. public. Also, in exchange for, quote, comprehensive releases from each of the debtors in their estates, the shareholder entities agreed to contribute 90% of any net proceeds in excess of $3 billion until the shareholder parties have contributed an additional $1.5 billion plus 50% of any net proceeds realized from any ex-U.S. sale thereafter plus the $3 billion over a period no longer than seven years from the effective date. The term sheet came after Arizona, a former supporter of the settlement framework, voiced its displeasure with the debtors' actions to date. It was filed days before the hearing on Purdue's motion for a nationwide preliminary injunction halting all actions relating to its marketing of OxyContin, including claims against the Sackler family. The U.S. Supreme Court on Monday denied the petition for a writ of certiorari filed by the Promisa Oversight Board on behalf of the Employee Retirement System, which sought review of the First Circuit's January 30, 2019 decision in the ERS security interest dispute revolving around whether ERS can avoid its bondholders' liens on the basis of a purportedly invalid financing statement. The Oversight Board has challenged the security interests asserted by the ERS bondholders with respect to certain pledged property, as well as purported security interests on loans made by ERS to system participants. 
Also on Monday, Puerto Rico Education Secretary Eligio Hernandez told reporters after a meeting with Governor Wanda Vasquez that the U.S. Department of Education has frozen the $1.5 billion fiscal 2020 funding assigned to the Commonwealth Education Department. That's until a trustee is named to oversee such funding. Hernandez said that officials are not contemplating school closures and are operating on remnants from previous year's funding and a larger-than-normal assignment of Commonwealth funds in this year's budget because of the, quote, special restrictions placed on the Commonwealth agency. He did not say how long he expects this funding to be able to continue supporting the operations of the public school system, but said that the agency has submitted a plan to reprogram existing funds to ensure that special education services continue through the end of the year. And on Tuesday, UBS Financial Services Incorporated of Puerto Rico filed a motion seeking relief from the automatic stay to pursue counterclaims for breach of contract and indemnification against ERS in a lawsuit currently pending in the Commonwealth Court of First Instance in San Juan. UBS also takes the position that the disputes raised by the ERS should be handled in the Title III process and stayed alongside other related Title III matters that are on hold, pursuant to Judge Laura Taylor Swain's current global stay. In the Commonwealth Court of Third Instance litigation, the ERS asserts that the bonds it issued, quote, were illegal, and that it seeks, quote, to hold UBS Financial, which was one of the underwriters for the bond offerings, responsible for that alleged legal defect in the ERS bonds, according to the motion. Although UBS disagrees with the contention by the ERS that its bonds violated Puerto Rico law, UBS argues that, quote, the responsibility for that problem, if it exists, falls solely on the ERS itself. The filing observes that in connection with the relevant bond offerings, UBS and the ERS, quote, entered into purchase agreements in which the ERS provided express representations that the ERS had, quote, full right, power, and legal authority to issue and deliver the bonds, that the ERS had obtained any approval it needed from government and public agencies to issue them, and that the ERS was not in violation of any constitutional provision or laws. Other top stories last week were Excel Model. Secured debt exchange of Frontier's unsecured debt, if allowed under indentures, could extend maturity well by a few years, but full equitization through restructuring likely a more sustainable solution. Bumblebee focuses restructuring negotiations around Section 363 sale process. Sears' plan and related settlements confirmed over outstanding objections. Court suggests current administrative claims funding shortfall could decrease dramatically as claims resolution process continues. As always, here's Jim Holloway with the week ahead. Well, thank you, Connor. Good morning, all. And you'll be happy to learn that this is not the week that I bemoan the hail of earnings reports that tend to smack us a few weeks after the commencement of a new fiscal quarter. Maybe I'll do that next week. So now you have something to look forward to. And as for this week, Monday, October 14th, well, there's not a lot going on other than for Murray Energy, whose forbearance expires just before the stroke of midnight. And at the stroke of midnight is, of course, the dawn of Tuesday, October 15th. And this is the day when, figuratively speaking, the gent with the shiny suit and the pinky ring taps on the door and says, I'm here for my envelope. That's right, there are coupons due for three series of Frontier Communications notes, one of J.C. Penney's, four of Malin Croats, and two of Murray Energy. And if that's not enough excitement for you, Approach Resources reaches the end of its forbearance. Down at the courthouse, we have a continued confirmation hearing for FES, an enforcement motion hearing in Verity, and a pretrial conference and omnibus hearing in La Paloma. Wednesday, October 16th, omnibus hearings in Sanchez, Verity, Ensis, and Jimboree. Second day hearing in Cloud Global. And we do have some earnings, Albertsons in the morning and Netflix after the close. Thursday, October 17th, hearings in Sheridan, Fusion in Yucatai, and an auction for some of South Cross's assets. 
And Friday, a final dip hearing in PES, a status hearing in Malincroat, and exclusivity extension hearing in Legacy. And that's it. Connor, back to you. Thanks, Jim. Next, we'll hear from Mark Fisher, our credit research director, and Peter Washkowitz, head of Reorg Covenants, who will discuss American and European high-yield issuance covenant trends. Thanks, Connor. So I'm here with Peter Washkowitz, head of Reorg Covenants in the U.S., and uh, we're going to talk about some provisions that he's noticed that, uh, that were um, here. He's highlighted them uh, for U.S. securities, but um, him and our, our, our global covenants team have actually... Um, highlighted them now uh, creeping into European uh, deals. We're going to talk about um, some provisions that add to some debt capacity along with uh, net short provisions uh, too, which Peter has uh, discussed in um, some U.S. deals. So, um, Peter, uh, you know, want to start, um, you had written recently uh, Merlin um, on their uh, new bond. Um, so why, why did you pick uh, this company? Why don't you just give us a little overview? Yeah, sure. So um, Merlin Entertainment Group is um, it's a British company that um, it has theme parks and it is being uh, acquired by Blackstone. And uh, the team in London um, put together an analysis of the bonds and they said it was uh, the bonds were some of the, um, the most aggressive that they had seen. Um, so I thought it'd be interesting to kind of compare those to, um, to the Johnson Control bonds. Yeah, the company is now has been renamed Clarios. But, um, you know, we, we've, we've come back to the Clarios funds a number of times this year just because they are kind of the exemplar of um, the prototypical uh, uber-aggressive bonds that um, kind of have become customary in uh, the U.S. high-yield uh, issuance space. Got it. But um, you also, I think, talk about Clarios because there was, even as aggressive as it was, I think the company wanted it to be even more aggressive. And you, um, it, was, it was one of the, the few bonds, I think Clarios, Allied, Sirius, where you actually got some, um, some, some pushback. Of course, there are more examples than that, but those are the ones that, that you've highlighted where um, investors said, uh, you know, enough, um, right? Uh, is, is that right? Yeah, so um, it's, it's a good point. So yeah, so um, this year, those three, um, um, Clarios, Allied, and uh, Sirius Computers, they all had very aggressive terms, and they all had investor pushback. And that pushback was actually successful in getting certain terms tightened. So what I just kind of wanted to do, um, you know, it, it was kind of a, a more for fun article, but it actually turned out to be really interesting, is I wanted to kind of, um, you know, compare side by side the, these covenants in the Merlin Entertainment Group, Merlin Entertainment Group, uh, their bonds. Um, against Clarios is to kind of maybe see if we could, you know, maybe predict uh, whether to the extent that investors are successful in pushing back on these bonds, whether um, the same kind of changes would be would be made in these bonds. So, you know, I kind of set out to determine capacity uh, compared to Clarios and then kind of, you know, see where we were and see maybe where uh, investors had been successful in the past in pushing back and where they may be able to uh, in these in these now current bonds. Great. So let's go right into capacity. And, and by that, I mean, I think you mean also uh, debt capacity, secure debt capacity. And uh, one of the things that Merlin does is it takes advantage of capacity within uh, their RP baskets. Um, can you 
that was a pretty big surprise to me when you first started writing about it. And I'm guessing it's a surprise to a lot of uh, investors out there. So can you just walk through how is it possible that a company can raise secure debt through an RP basket? Yeah, so um, I'll, yeah, so let, let me just explain the, the, the concept. Um, and then Merlin actually took it to, Merlin Entertainment uh, actually took it to a little more extreme than I had seen. Um, so, you know, starting, uh, you know, actually I think with Clarios' bonds, uh, there was this concept, and it's actually come up in now loan agreements too, where uh, companies have additional debt capacity uh, using capacity in their restricted payments covenant. So, um, you know, let's say you have a, a $500 million general restricted payment basket that can be used to pay dividends. Um, these agreements now let you take that capacity and incur debt. Um, you know, so some, some, that's aggressive in and of itself. Then some, uh, some bonds and some loans allow that debt to then be secured. Um, and then, so even worse, and this was in... Um, this was actually in serious computers uh, notes as well, though it was later taken out, and it is in Merlin Entertainment's group uh, bonds, that the companies can incur two times the restricted payment capacity, and all of it can be secured. So, uh, you know, it went from to wacky to, like, uber wacky. Just I mean, you're, you're giving these companies, you're shifting so much capacity from restricted payments to debt, and then on top of that, you're allowing this debt to be secured. So... It's just giving infinitely more flexibility to these companies. And we also shouldn't forget that because this is a restricted payment basket, um, the, uh, all this value, can, this opens up potential for all this value uh, to be shifted to non-guarantor entities too, right? Uh, yeah, well, so um, well, so with, it, with, the, with the debt for RP capacity, what, what that does is, so take, for instance, the Merlin Entertainment Group, they have about 113 uh, euro of, of cash. Um, and they have dividend capacity of, um, I, I forget what it was, but let, let's just say it's 500, 500 euro of dividend capacity. They cannot actually currently fund that dividend capacity because they only have the 103 million uh, euro. So what, what this debt basket allows you to do is you say, okay, I'm, let me take 250, uh, 250 euro of that capacity. I'm now going to incur debt. So yes, I have 250 euro less of dividend capacity, but now I actually have a source to fund the remaining 250 euro. So it's not actually giving these companies kind of, if you totaled up all debt, RP, investment, uh, and prepayment covenant uh, capacities, it's not giving them any additional capacity, but it actually allows them to, in, in some cases, to utilize that capacity where, they're, uh, where they otherwise wouldn't be able to. And so, yeah, so they could take RP capacity, um, they can incur debt, and then they can just they can pay a dividend that they uh, have not been allowed to with uh, without incurring that debt. Interesting. Um, for those uh, that don't know, Peter has started a webinar uh, a webinar series. Uh, he calls it Covenants 101, but certainly it uh, goes beyond the 101 level where he talks about uh, these types of issues. So um, for upcoming ones, I'm going to encourage uh, you, Peter, to, to definitely tackle this issue because it seems like it's a pretty big risk. And I imagine a lot of people are not fully uh, aware of that risk. Um, but yeah, I actually, um, I actually, uh, on uh, a quick plug on October uh, 22nd, we're, we're doing a webinar on, uh, on, uh, value leakage. So, uh, it's, it's exactly on this point. Perfect. Um, and, and we did not just plan that either. So, uh, <laughs> I hope everyone tunes in. Um, 
so let's let's uh, go specifically to to Merlin. Why don't you quantify uh, for us what um, what all these risks equate to? Uh, you always look at things as uh, ability to, or, or you always compare everything to percentage of EBITDA, which I think is a great way to to look at things. Yeah. So um, I, I'm not going to get into kind of how I how uh, I, I calculate this, just because it, it's too it, it's too difficult in the podcast form. But what I did conclude was that under Merlin Entertainment Group's bond, um, the company is allowed to incur uh, 2.65 billion euro of secured debt capacity, uh, and that translates to 524% of the company's uh, adjusted, pro, uh, adjusted pro forma EBITDA. Now, 524% is it's, it's very significant. Uh, when you compare it to Clarios, uh, in its uh, initial bond, before it, uh, the terms were tightened, the company could incur secure debt equal to 663% of EBITDA. Uh, once the terms were tightened, that capacity was reduced to 623% of EBITDA. So still, Clarios uh, at 623% of EBITDA had more flexibility to incur additional secure debt than Merlin Entertainment's group, uh, which has 524% of EBITDA. So just, uh, you know, it, it's interesting because, yes, the Merlin Entertainment Group's bonds are aggressive, but when you're kind of just calculating actual capacity, Clarios is, um, are still a little more flexible in terms of secured debt. Um, in terms of structurally secured debt, um, Clarios's revised bonds allowed 161% of EBITDA, and Merlin Entertainment Group's uh, allowed 294% of EBITDA. So in that factor, uh, Merlin Entertainment Group uh, is more flexible in terms of structurally senior debt. Yeah, but let's let let's talk about that the specific RP basket though, right? If you miss that one, what um, how much debt does that lead to? Yeah, so good point. So um, as I said, the total secured capacity was two point six five billion euro. Um, now one point oh six billion of that, so uh, you know a little under fifty percent, but still a significant amount um, is directly attributable to. Uh, the ability to incur debt based on RP capacity. What's, what's a little worse here is one of the baskets that the company can use to incur debt is this equity buyback basket, uh, which provides companies, and this is you know in, in all bonds, it provides a yearly capacity. So not only does this basket give the company at issuance $1.06 billion of secured capacity, but every year, company has an additional $60 million of uh, secured capacity, which can be carried forward up to a maximum of $240 million of additional secured capacity because uh, it utilizes the equity buyback basket. Just enough. <laughs> uh, so great. So um, definitely something um, to, to, to watch out for, and uh, we'll see how... Um, see what else they sort of sneak in there uh, on the capacity side. Now, another provision wanted to to talk about are the uh, net short provisions, which you've discussed uh, before. They we hypothesized that they likely came uh, in reaction to what happened with Windstream uh, to prevent a uh, net short seller from. Uh, taking a company down, so to speak, uh, as as um, as what happened in in Widstream, which is now in bankruptcy. Uh, what what um, where did this pop up, and uh, anything different, or is it all similar to uh, what the U.S. ones were? Well, in, in form, they are similar, but um, you know, we started seeing the net short provisions pop up uh, beginning in May with uh, Builders First Source and Charter Communications. Um, you know, as as the year went on, it gradually got a little more. Uh, until September, when it just kind of blew up, and 
uh, we, we've seen at least 10 uh, issuances in September that uh, in the U.S. that included uh, net short provisions. Uh, but this was actually just, um, just limited to the U.S. until uh, mid-September when uh, British satellite company uh, Inmarsat uh, you know, came to market issuing uh, 1.125 billion of, uh, of senior unsecured notes that actually had net short provisions, uh, similar to the ones that we have uh, talked about and even had a podcast on, um, similar to those provisions in the U.S. Now, when the bonds actually were issued, the um, investors, well, I guess actually not, uh, not uh, yes, investors pushed back and uh, the net short provisions were eliminated from Inmarsat's final version of the notes. But um, this past week, Merlin Entertainment Group and another company, uh, Cantar, um, those uh, which is being uh, acquired uh, by Bain Capital, those two series of bonds, uh, both issued uh, in Europe, uh, both issued by European issuers, uh, contained a full suite of uh, net short provisions. So whether or not this is kind of limited to these two, or whether these are kind of the um, you know the the establishment of the net short provisions in Europe. Um, it won't take very long to, to see, but uh, it is interesting that now two companies have come out with very similar net short provisions. Yeah, definitely. I mean, still, uh, we still have to see how these will be enforced and how this will this will play out if it does um, play out when an event actually uh, happens. But uh, interesting to see that uh, that spreading uh, spreading to Europe as well, and and these are. Uh, it's, it's really sort of the explosion that's happened in the U.S. as well with these provisions. So, uh, Peter, thank you. A um, couple of things uh, definitely for us to look out for and look forward to, to the next time you're on. Of course. Thank you. All right, back, Connor, back to you. Thanks a lot, Mark. And thank you, listener, for tuning in to another Reorg Weekly Review. As always, find this and all our podcasts on our media page, plus iTunes, plus SoundCloud. This has been The Week in Reorg. I'm Connor Skelding. 